All right. Exodus chapter 23 is where we are going to be today. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 23 and all of chapter 24. As we continue our study going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. I feel a little bit guilty saying that because last week wasn't exactly verse by verse, was it? Not exactly. But it was three and a half chapters, so you guys did great to come back. <laughs> Exodus 23. So we're going to, as I said, look at Exodus 23 from verse 20 to the end of the chapter and then all of, verse, or all of chapter 24. And I want to just start by reading chapter 24, verses 3 and the first part of verse 4. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose up early, and he built an altar. And Father, I pray that as we get into your word today, that you would help us to respond to you. Lord, that we would see ourselves in a similar spot that Israel saw themselves. Lord, hearing your promises, seeing your goodness, knowing what you've done and what you've said, and would say, Lord, we will respond to you. Father, we pray you'd show us the response you want. We pray you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us the power to respond. And that you would be pleased, Lord, with our response today. Please, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says... Amen. It's probably a good idea at this point in the book of Exodus to do a little bit of review, to kind of... Make sure we're all on the same page of what we've seen so far. If you remember, in the very, very beginning, we showed, we showed that Exodus is actually split up into three parts. Uh, so in Exodus chapters 1 to 18, we have rescue, where God is actually liberating his people. And if you remember, we saw that God had dramatically rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And he had done so by doing the kinds of uh, supernatural judgments that showed that he was greater than any god of Egypt, so that he, uh, so that I'm sorry, so that Israel and Egypt would know that there's no god but him. And then in, in chapters 19 through what we're looking at today, chapter 24, we're, we're looking at Revelation. That is, God communicates with His people, and, and we're seeing how God has has given a, a clear revelation of who He is and what He wants. And so, as we're going to see today, they can respond to that. And then the last section that we'll start next week, or the week after, actually, in chapter 25 to 40, to the end of the book, is uh, to see how God desires relationship. That God's going to show in, in the giving the, the, the instructions for the tabernacle, how it's to be built, what's, what's, what it's meant to look like, how it's meant to be used, that God wants to show how he's going to be present with his people. And he wants to be present with his people because he wants real relationship. So here we are at the end of that second section, the section on Revelation, and, and it's a preparation for the third section, and it's God requiring a response from his people. He's already proven to them that he is committed to them, that he loves them, that he's chosen them, that he's rescued them, that he's promised that they will get to the promised land, and he's saying, listen, are you going to respond to this? 
in a very real way, God is saying to his people, this is the relationship I'm committed to have with you. Do you want it? Do you want this relationship? And he's going to spell out to them, he's going to call them to do two things in response to this covenant. So we're going to look at those two things. The first one, in chapter 23, at the end of chapter 23, we're going to see that God is calling his people to exclusive obedience. Look with me at, at verse 20 of chapter 23. Behold, God says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. He's talking about, of course, the promised land. And God's going to say here, as, as we get into this whole issue of obedience, he's being clear here that obedience is not the earning an entrance into the promised land. Obedience is about moving toward it by faith. Verse 21, he says, Pay careful attention to him, that is this angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, now God's using language here that is, is connecting him to this angel. We've seen this before in Exodus where we see uh, an angel speaking as if it was God, but then not God. And, and it kind of reminds us of what we see in the New Testament with Jesus, that, that Jesus speaks as God, but not the Father. And so some have said this is what's called a Christophany or a, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. But the point we need to see for sure is that this angel is speaking in the authority of God. Because the first thing we have to recognize is that God calls all his people to obey all his word. Not to earn something from him, but as a recognition of faith. God, we trust you, so we're going to do what you say. Now that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Or at least it should be. But it's amazing how slow we are to actually obey. It's amazing how sometimes we treat obedience as something that's optional. Oh, God, I believe, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And yet, that's not the response that God calls us to. In fact, this isn't just kind of an Old Testament thing. If you are familiar with the Bible or you understand, if, you're, if you've been around Christianity long enough to know that, that that the, the way we're made right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And to go, okay, I know I'm right with God by grace. I, that obedience stuff, it's not going to save anybody. Well, I'm glad that you understand that, but you need to understand this. Obedience does not undermine faith. It's the expression of faith. It doesn't compete with faith. It's the expression of faith, or at least it's meant to be. Listen to this, New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, notice, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for, not work up, work out. Use the salvation you've been given. Learn to walk in the salvation you've been given. Not earn anything. You're just, in a sense, you're using it. You're exercising the saving faith you've been given. In fact, he says, this is why, notice, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want you to think about this, to will and to work. That God works in us to have a desire to obey him, and then God works in us to give us the power to obey him. That's what he's saying. 
We're not saved by our obedience, but we do experience our salvation through our obedience. You get me? And the same way went with these people of Israel. And it's got to be an exclusive obedience. Look at verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Now, he's specifically talking about Canaanite worship, and they often worship fertility gods, and the context will bring this out. But it's important to recognize something, and we're going to talk more about this in verse 32 and 33, that, that, that God is saying to Israel, listen, you're just as susceptible to the corruption that the Canaanites had, you're just as susceptible to that same kind of corruption. And because you're susceptible, I want you to completely destroy the gods that pulled them into this. Now, their gods are made-up gods, aren't they? Maybe demonically inspired, but they're just things that they made with their own hands. Usually what idolatry is, is we take a desire that we have, maybe a desire for a good thing, and we shape it into a god thing that we worship. And they were literally doing that. They worshiped fertility, and so they had all these symbols that were like, sex symbols and stuff that they would kind of shape, that they would worship and bow down to, and they'd have all kinds of practices that were, were just really corrupt. In fact, he gives notice to these, in a sense, a hint to these. In verse 25, he says, you should not serve the Lord your God, he, uh, for he will bless your bread and your water. I will take sickness away from you, God says. None shall miscarry or be barren in the land, he says. I will fulfill the number of your days. These, these Canaanite Fertility rituals would, would include things like sleeping with the prostitutes that were there, having all kinds of sexual rituals to kind of prove that you could, you trusted that this God, this false God, little g, to kind of make sure that you had children. Remember, having children in that day was, was a blessing, but specifically financially. If you had children, you had workers for your, for your farm. And so they, they really needed to have kids. But, but the reality here is God's saying, listen, he's saying these corrupt practices, in fact, they also included things like taking your firstborn child for, for certain tribes and certain gods, taking your firstborn child and, and literally sacrificing that child to the God. And God's saying these corrupt practices are completely unnecessary in light of my promises. I'm going to make a promise that, 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 that fulfills these things for you. Now, now, I want you to, before we, we kind of dismiss this and go, okay, that's weird that people did that kind of stuff, I want you to try to feel what these guys would have felt because this does, re, this does relate to where we are right now. As they're going into this promised land, as they're starting fresh, as they've been slaves for all this year, they remember, as slaves, what's in their history? They saw their children killed. And, and, and they are desperate to start fresh to not have to ever go back to what they had in Egypt. And so as they're going to approach, they're going to be tempted to do whatever it takes to make sure they can keep their family life as it is. And so even as they see the, the other tribes, the Canaanite tribes being destroyed by God, being wiped out, even as they see that, they might see these symbols. And they're going to be tempted to do things. One out of desperation to make sure that they get what they would so really want and their families being restored, but also maybe just in the temptation to have more sex. And God's saying, I want these things to be utterly destroyed. I want all 
counterfeit worship to cease. See, here's what we tend to do. We tend to not give God credit for the good that comes into our life. And because we don't give him credit for the good that comes into our life, you know what we tend to do? When we need more good, we don't look to him. Listen to what James says in the New Testament book of James. James says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You know one of the ways we deceive ourselves in thinking, well, that good just kind of happened by accident. Or that good happened by the hard work of my own hands. Instead of going, every good gift I have comes from God, so if I need more good, I'm going to go to God. See, God calls, commands all counterfeit worship to cease. He calls us to look to him exclusively. But also, God's going to drive out all the enemies of his people. He's going to do the work. Look at verse 27. God says, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets, some of your versions say, again, terror, uh, before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. God's saying, listen, I'm going to do this, and you need to know I'm going to do this because this, these other tribes, they're stronger than you are. And if you face an enemy stronger than you, you know what you need? You need an ally who's stronger still. And so God is saying, listen, I'm going to do this. God's looking for, he's calling us to an exclusive obedience because only he can drive out the enemy from our life. Because the enemy is too strong for us on our own. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 29, notice, I will not drive them out from before you in just one year. It would be convenient if he did that, but he says, I'm not going to do that. Lest the land be desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. He says, verse 30, little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the, to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You notice this? God says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, but then you're going to do it. But he says, but I'm not going to do it as quick as you want. See, deliverance from our enemies comes at the pace that God sets. Now, God tells the, the Israelites why he's doing this. In their case, he says, if I drive them out too quick, the beasts are gonna, wild beasts are going to take over and you're not going to be in a safe place. If I drive them out too quick, you're not going to be able to possess the land in the way it's going to be most fruitful. But God doesn't always tell us what he's doing, does he? One of the hardest things about obeying God exclusively is that we sometimes are called to obey him and we don't really know what the immediate result's going to be. But God calls us, listen, to trust his character in this. He calls us to say, okay, God, I'm going to trust that you are going to deliver me. Only you can deliver me. And you're going to do that at the pace that you deem best. Again, New Testament. Listen to this, 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you have, noticed suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
Man, don't you wish God would just kind of define what he means by a little while? <laughs> I wish sometimes he would. I wish he would tell us how long is this season going to be, but he doesn't always. But what he does always do is he does always promise to, draw, to, draw, uh, to deliver us from all evil. He promises to do that. And we can trust him that if it's taken longer than we want, it's because it's for our good and for the good of those around us. Now, verse 32, we also see here that God warns all, warns that all counterfeit gods are a snare. Look what he says in verse 32. He says, you shall make no covenant with them or the, and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest you, they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now again, you can imagine these people as they, as the Israelites, as they get into the Canaanite lands and they, they have these battles. If they win the battle, the temptation is going to be, okay, well, let's just kind of let some of these guys live. And, and you know, we didn't like it when they wouldn't let us worship our God in, in, in Egypt, so we'll let them worship their God. And God's going, don't do that. Don't compromise. You know, the same motive that God had in saying, I want you to destroy their gods completely, take their idols and just destroy them completely, have no even resemblance of anything of their idols anymore is because they're just as susceptible to worshiping idols as the Canaanites. The Canaanites were not worse people than the Israelites. That's not what the scripture's teaching. They were just committed to worse gods. And God's saying, listen, you're drawn to those things too, so they can't have anything to do, you can't have anything to do with them. This is part of God's grace. Listen, when God calls us to an exclusive obedience to him, it is his grace to us. Because we're the kind of people that won't, won't be exclusive to anybody except maybe ourselves. And so God in his grace says, no, you've got to be exclusive to me. In fact, listen, the whole reason that obedience is meant to be exclusive is the same reason marriage is meant to be exclusive. Because it's meant to be about love. It's meant to be about saying, God, if I'm going to worship someone, it needs to be you. And to worship you is to obey you, and so I, I need to obey you exclusively. This is what Jesus says, isn't it, in, in, in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This exclusive obedience that God calls us to in response to his grace, in response to his redeeming us, in response to his Faithful, faithfulness to his promise. All this obedience he's calling us to does not earn us anything. And it doesn't add to God anything. But it's how we experience the salvation that he's provided for us. We have to get to a place, brothers and sisters, we gotta get to a place where we recognize that obedience is not optional for us. Now, let me say one more thing before I move on to the second point. We're talking about obedience, especially in this context with Israel. Obedience to the law was not about being perfect. It really wasn't. Now, obviously, the scripture is really clear. We saw this a couple weeks ago. If you fail to obey one point of the law, you've broken all the law. So the law commands that we command, we, we obey all of it. We said that even as the first point. But it's not about perfection, because what was in the law? It was, here's what God calls you to do, but also what was in the laws, we'll see in coming chapters, when you don't do what God calls you to do, here's what you do in that circumstance. So God provides in his law sacrifices so that our failures still get covered up and washed away. 
But this is why we're talking about an exclusive obedience. God, I, I need to obey you and you alone because what's tempting is to try to give you just a little bit to maybe appease you, to maybe I can get something from you if I do this. You ever made a deal with God? Maybe you ever pray in a desperate situation make a deal with God? We've all done it. In a, in a kind of a, a lighthearted way, I remember when my oldest was, uh, son, Garrett, was sick as a baby. Nothing ma- major, but you're first, you freak out. And, you know, we didn't know what was wrong with him. He just wouldn't be consoled. Sarah and I were taking turns in the middle of the night trying to keep him awake, you know, or, try, or trying to console him, help him to sleep. And I was, we were getting so desperate. I remember holding him, rocking him back and forth. And I'm like confessing sin from years before. God, I'm sorry. I'll do anything. What are you? I'm making promises to God about being a missionary in England and all kinds of stuff. Why? Because I'm making a deal with God because I'm thinking if I just obey enough, then he'll do what I need him to do. And God says, that's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for an exclusive obedience, even if what happens to you isn't exactly what you want. Not because, listen, not because I'm mean or because I'm a megalomaniac. I'm asking for exclusive obedience because it's best for you. It's how you get to enjoy the salvation I've provided for you. So that's the first bit. God calls his people to exclusive relationship. But also, in chapter 24, we're going to see now, God calls his people to relational closeness. This is preparing us, again, for the last bit, the last section of Exodus. But look at chapter 24, verse 1. Then God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar, Moses alone can come near to the Lord, but others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now, we're going to come back to these first two verses when we get to verse 9. But look at verse 3. Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. That is, listen, all the stuff we've been reading way back in chapter 19 and 20. Chapter 19, 23, really chapter 19 and 23 Moses is kind of reiterating this to the people. All the rules, remember those were the guidelines so the judges could, could know rightly how to apply the principles that God has in his law. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words and he rose up early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, God, as we're going to see in the context, wants his people to be close to him. I know you're thinking, wait a second, there was limits and boundaries. I know, don't worry, we'll get to that. But the point is, he wants his people to be close to him. And this is the thing you need to know first and foremost. God's word and God's altar are the means, our means of drawing close to him. See, when God gives us his word, it's really only his word that can, that can deal with the wrong assumptions that we naturally have about God. We naturally think God is, is, is harsh or uncaring or distant or cold. This is how we naturally see God. Now, we wouldn't confess that because we know that's not true. If we've been Christians for a long time, we know that's not true. But we feel that. This is why when things get really tough, we tend to go, God, I don't know where you are. I don't even know if I can trust you. Because we tend to stop thinking of God as he is and start thinking about God as we feel. That is natural. We all do it. Every single one of us. But his word, listen, corrects that in us. 
There's been so many seasons. I, I tend to be a person that doesn't see God as permissive. That could be another mistake we can make. Oh, God doesn't care about my sin. He, Jesus died for me. It doesn't really make a difference. We can be too permissive about God too. But I tend to be the kind of person that sees God as harsh. I don't know why. I honestly don't know why. Psychologically, my dad wasn't harsh. He was a lovely, sweet man. Not a Christian, but a lovely, sweet man. I don't know why. But I tend to see God naturally as harsh. And so when I blow it, I think that's it, I blow it. I, I, I'm going to be in the doghouse for a while. And then I read the scripture, and I see that God says about himself that he's slow to anger and quick to show mercy. I see in Jesus someone who's radically compassionate and patient with sinners. And when I go back to Scripture and I see what God is like, then I'm like, yes, this is the God I need to draw close to, not the God that I feel or assume about. But also, listen, an altar, you know what an altar is? Literally, an altar in the Scripture is where heaven and earth come together. That's what it's about. We're going to see this more when we get to uh, the, the next section, the chapter 25 to 40, but just know that. Where do heaven and earth come together? Where can we meet with God? Which brings us to the next point. Look at verse 5. It's the shedding of blood that gives us confidence to draw close. Look at verse 5. So there's this altar, and what happens? And Moses sent young men of the people of Israel who, burnt, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the, the book of the covenant, it's all he just read before, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and, behold, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, if you're not familiar with Christianity or the scriptures, this sounds absolutely disgusting and horrifying. I mean, no one's going to put this verse on a, in a card for a graduate. Congratulations. And all the blood was thrown on the people. I mean, it's a, it's a vivid, kind of terrifying picture. Literally, I'm not trying to be gross. Buckets of blood. Whoosh! Now, probably more likely it was more sprinkled in, in a symbolic way. But still, there, there's all this blood. Why? This is why. Listen. There's two things we have to recognize. One... The sacrifices that are being required here are on purpose. It's the, the sacrifices acknowledge, these sacrifices acknowledge the seriousness of the meeting place and the cost of authentic relationships. Listen, if you have any relationships that are authentic in your life, I'm talking just now horizontally, just, you know, husband, wife, child, parents, uh, uh, friends, co-workers, any relationships that have any sorts of depth, you know they are costly. How much more a relationship with the creator of the universe? And so the, the idea of being sacrificed is going, this is serious, this is serious stuff. <laughs> we're, we're not just kind of casually going, what's up, God, let's have some coffee. We are recognizing who we're approaching. But also, listen, Throughout the scripture, and again, we'll see this more as we move on in Exodus, blood is about purifying the people so that they can draw close. In fact, this actually ultimately points to Jesus. Listen to this. This is what Jesus does. In fact, he seems to be quoting even what we just read. 
in Exodus. In Matthew chapter 26, this is during the Passover feast, but the words he used seem to fit with this. He says, and Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, all these oxen and bulls and sheep and goats that were, had to be slain over and over again to temporarily cover up sins all pointed to a time when Jesus would die once for all. So that sins aren't just covered up. They're actually washed away. This is what the author of Hebrews brings out. It's a great book. If you haven't read the book of Hebrews, I really encourage you to read it. It might be confusing if you don't know the Old Testament, but if you're reading Exodus with us, read Hebrews. It will really help. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 9. Not even the first covenant, the one that we're looking at in Exodus, was inaugurated without blood. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, notice, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, though he's not going to be crucified again, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. See, see, the emphasis that the author of Hebrews is making is that it's Jesus' blood, it's his sacrifice that makes us able to approach God and to be in God's presence forever. Now, for some of you, you're going, yeah, I know all this stuff. I've been around the church forever. I know all this stuff. But for others of you, you're going, why? I don't get it. If God's so good, can he just forgive us? Can't God just say, okay, you're sorry, that's cool. Let's move on. Does that, is that the way it works in your relationships? If somebody hurts you, do you just say, yeah, it's cool. I'm not going to hold it against you. I, I, it's, it's all good. We're fine. Yeah, you do that when it's something quite small. Somebody takes a, you know, maybe one of your roommates borrows a piece of clothing while asking. You might be annoyed, but you're like, it's cool. You know, I don't want to ruin a relationship over it. You know, someone bumps into you. Sorry, no, it's fine. No, no worries. What about they do something really serious? What if your roommate tries to sleep with your boyfriend? What if your parents treat you as if you're less valuable to them than a stranger? What, what, what if your children decide that they, they don't think that, that you've ever loved them and they want nothing to do with you? What do you do when things are that heavy and that hard? What do you do in that situation? If you're going to move towards reconciliation, what do you do? If you're going to forgive, you know you have to absorb something horrible and able to give that forgiveness. The cross of Jesus, his sacrifice, is God absorbing all the offensive things that we've ever done to him, to others, forever. That's what it is. Now, go back to the context of, of Exodus. God says, listen, okay, I'm calling you to your relational closeness, and this is only going to happen, listen, if blood is shed. Because if you, until you know you're purified, you won't draw close. Listen, until you know you're purified, you won't 
draw close. Do you realize that what Jesus did is enough? It's enough. You think, yeah, John, you don't know how about him. You're right, I don't. But I guarantee you, you're worse than you think you are. And what Jesus did is enough. It's enough to cleanse us so that we can have confidence before God. We can draw close to him. Not because we're worthy, but because we're washed. We're washed clean in the blood. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is what this is pointing forward to. See, God calls us as, as a response to the covenant he makes with us, to the, 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 the commitment of love that he has towards his people. He calls us to respond, listen, by drawing close to him. We, uh, Adam initiated this week uh, some prayer between us as trustees. He just, lovely little messages saying, hey, brothers, how can I pray for you this week? Really appreciated that. And the thing that came to my mind right away was, ah, oh, pray for me that I wouldn't just have a quiet time. I wouldn't just read my Bible and pray. I would actually draw close to God. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's so easy for us to kind of go to church, read your Bible, pray, go to house group, serve on a team, boom, 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 and never draw near to God. Now, let me be clear. You're not going to be able to draw near with God unless all those things are a part of it. It's just, just part of just normal Christian experiences that we, we are, we're with God's people. We serve God's people. We are in God's word. We pray to God. All that stuff's got to be there. But you can do those things and not draw near to God. And often we don't draw near to God in doing those things because we just don't feel confident. We're not sure he loves us. We're not sure he accepts us. And this is why blood is necessary. It points to the blood that Christ shed so that we could have complete confidence that we can draw near to him. God was already hinting at this way back 4,000 years ago with the old covenant. So what happens? Look at verse 9. It says, then Aaron and uh, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders went, of Israel went up. Now, what do we read back in, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24? What do we read? We read that they're all called to move towards God, okay? God's, God says, okay, I want you guys to come up, and I want you all to move towards me. Nadab and Abihu, by the way, are Aaron's sons, okay? They're going to be, in the future, they're going to be the priestly line. But he says, I want you guys all move towards us. But here's what we read in verses 9 and 10. We just read verse 9. Look at verse 10. It says, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, that's God's feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens in its clearness. Now, this is interesting, because the Bible says all over the place, many times, no one can see God and live. In fact, we'll see this later on in chapter 33 of Exodus. And yet here it's saying they saw God. But here's what's the indication. The indication is what they're seeing is they're, they're seeing, in a sense, the floor under his feet, and they see enough to know that God is right there with them, but they dare not look up and gaze at him. You know why? Because he's God. 
This is what we call reverence or the fear of God. There's a sense here that these guys are recognizing, okay, we're in God's presence, and the thing is we, we dare not look at him face to face. He's too holy. He's too good for us to look at him. But then look what happens in verse, uh, verse 11. This is, this is one of the most under, understated verses in all the scripture. Look at verse 11. It says, and he, that's God, did not lay his hand on the chief men. In other words, he didn't kill them. Of the chief men of the people of Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. The word beheld is to gaze. And again, here's how I picture it. They won't look up and see God face to face. Again, the whole context of Scripture seems to bear that out. But they see this pure sky blue stone that is just the most amazing, brilliant thing they've seen. They know God's feet are on top of that, so to speak. His God is standing there right near them. They dare not look out, but they're thinking kind of like, oh gosh, is God going to just wipe us out because we know we're not holy. Is God going to wipe us out? And he doesn't. And not only does he not wipe them out, listen, they are able to eat and drink. And in that culture, and really most cultures around the world, eating and drinking is a way to say, you're welcome here. So God is saying, listen, he's saying, you are welcome here. You can celebrate that you're in my presence, alive and well. This is important. Because this combination of reverence and celebration should be our experience in drawing close to God. Listen, don't miss this stuff, please, seriously. Listen, this is a time for all of us to get our experiences brought in line with what God wants to do by his Holy Spirit. Listen, one of the things that we do wrong, one of the mistakes that we make as modern Christians is, well, several things. One, we cannot really want to experience God. I don't really care about experiencing God. It doesn't really matter. As long as I, I have my you know, free ticket into heaven, that's cool. That's bogus. That's not what we see in the scripture. That's not the response God wants. But the other mistake we can make is just to kind of want to draw near to God in either reverence or celebration. And so we, we, we think, okay, as long as I fear God, as long as I recognize I'm sober about who I'm coming to, as long as that's there, I'll pray or I'll worship. And all there ever is is this reverence and this sobriety. And we never believe for joy. We never stop and think and celebrate, wow, what a privilege it is to actually approach the creator of the universe as our father. And the other thing we can do is say, okay, reverence, that's, that's, yeah, maybe that's, we don't need that anymore because Jesus died for us, and so we don't really need to fear God anymore. So we're going to just celebrate how great God is. But you know what happens then? We end up celebrating a God that's actually less than God is. We need both. And there's no conflict. And this is what we see in the early church when God's spirit was moving in a mighty, powerful way. Listen to this. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. Notice, listen, and walking in the fear of God, reverence, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, celebration, it multiplied. You guys want both? Church, you want both? You want to draw near to God that way? Let's do both, man. Let's remember what he's done to give us confidence to draw near the shed blood of Christ. 
And let's draw near with reverence. Lord, we dare not think we deserve to be here, but we're so thankful to be here in your presence, acceptable before you, loved by you, promised to get to the promised land because of what you've done. You will get us there, Lord. We don't deserve it, but you will get us there. And Lord, we want to celebrate you, knowing it's all of grace. Does that sound like something you want to experience? (laughs) That's the response that God's calling us to, people. It's the response of the believing soul. Now, lastly, verses 12 to 18, you see on your handout that we're going to talk about here how God's glory is the invitation to draw close. And this is where you're going to really have to do some thinking. This will go pretty fast, so follow me, okay? Look at verse 12. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. And so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go up to them. So Moses is expecting to be up there in God's presence for a while. But this is the thing that you really need to see, what's going on here that we saw hinted at in the, in the first couple of verses of chapter 24, and that is that only Moses and now Joshua are allowed to actually go up to where God wants them to be. They had a privileged position. There, there might be, a, hopefully there's a little image on your screen. There should be a, uh, there it is. That's, that's a mountain, by the way. That triangle is a mountain. That's about as artistic as I get. And so you see this kind of broken down. You have, in that circle that's kind of a little bit different color, that's, that's kind of a picture of the glory of God, God's presence in a sense. So you get Moses with Joshua. They're allowed to be there, but a little step below them is Aaron and his sons, that sort of priestly line. Then you have the 70 elders who are meant to represent the people, but then at the very bottom, kind of at the bottom of the mountain, you have the rest of the people. Only Moses was able to draw near. But as these other guys came to the mountain, can you imagine what they're thinking? We just ate and drank in the presence of God. This is glorious. Moses goes up the rest of the way. Oh, man, I would love to go there. Look at verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of Israel. Glory, if you remember, when the Bible uses the word glory, it's not like how we use it in English, like just, we talk about glory, like, oh, you know, no guts, no glory, that kind of phrase. And it's the idea that you're not going to get any praise if you don't do something risky. But when the Bible uses the term glory, it's usually speaking of the unique value of something. So the Proverbs talk about the glory of a, of a young man is his strength. The glory of his old man is his gray hair or his wisdom. In my case, no hair. So it's the unique value of someone. So when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's the unique value of his absolute goodness. And when the glory comes down, when God's glory comes down, it's, listen, it's the reality that God's absolute reality is there. He's making himself tangibly known. 
And these guys are all below, and all they can see, it's got to be a consuming fire. But of course, just like the burning bush back in chapter 3, the bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. Moses and Joshua, in a sense, they're on fire, but they're not consumed. They get to experience the glory of God. So what's God doing? God is giving his people a picture of there is more to my glory than you're experiencing. There is even more closeness that you can have with me than what you're having right now. But he's saying only now, right now, only Moses can have this. Verse 18 says, Moses entered the cloud. He went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, 40, the number 40 is significant in the Scripture. 40 is is always associated with with something when God's going to do a new thing. God's going to indicate something new. So there's the flood when God's going to build a new people through Moses and his, or through Noah and his family. There's the, the flood, and it floods for 40 days and 40 nights. There's, there's the fact that Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years before it can actually begin to conquer the lands, the promised lands. We read about that in Acts chapter 7. And, and Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days before he begins his earthly ministry. And then after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, Jesus shows himself for 40 days after his resurrection before he ascends to heaven and does what? Sends his Holy Spirit. So 40 is is God's way of saying, I'm about to do something new. And as we said before, from chapters 25 to 40, and that's going to go really fast, God's going to show, I'm the God who wants to be present with you. But I want to close with this. Actually, I'm going to ask the, the music team to come back up, getting ready for the uh, communion song. You, you might have noticed that it's, it's not the fourth Sunday. Usually we have communion on the fourth Sunday, but we're having communion today, and hopefully it's obviously why. Because this is God's, the response that God calls us to. He calls us to respond to what he's done for us in Jesus. In fact, let me close with this. Listen. Because as Moses had an exclusive audience with God on the top of Mount Sinai, Jesus has even a more exclusive, eternal audience with the Father. He always has, he always will be. Here's what we read about Jesus. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen, notice, His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, and no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, that's Jesus, who is God himself, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. See, we don't go to Mount Sinai and maybe only at the bottom level or maybe if we're in the priestly or or we're in the representatives would go up a little higher level, or maybe if we're in the priestly class, we go be even a higher level. No, no, no. We go higher than Moses and Joshua because we're not on Mount Sinai. We go through Mount Calvary, what? The very presence of God, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies if we put our faith in him. God has said, I've made a way for you to know me personally. I've redeemed you with my own precious blood. And I'm calling you to an exclusive obedience and I'm calling you to relational closeness. Do you want this? Do you want this? Jesus is God's invitation to us into his glory.
You understand that? We're going to sing this last song. And as we sing this last song together, let's let this be a time where our hearts are prepared to go to the Lord's table together. If you uh, are new to Christianity, if this, is, this church stuff is new to you, and you have not yet received Jesus, if you have not yet said, okay, God, I know I needed Jesus to die for me so I could be right with you. If that hasn't clicked with you yet, communion is not for you. Not because God doesn't love you or want you, but until you receive Christ, you can't have that communion with God, okay? But if you've done that, if you've put your faith in who Jesus is, and what he's done for you on the cross, then communion is for you. This is a chance for you to draw closer relationally with God, to remember what he's done to make that possible. So as we sing this song, what we're going to ask you to do is, if you, if you, you do know Jesus, and you do want to draw closer to him, then you can get up and you can get a little bit of crushed grape juice and you can get a, a little bit of unleavened bread or cracker and you can take that back to your seat and just hold your portion and then we'll all partake together at the end. But if you have not yet received Christ, why? No, I, I mean that seriously, why? What, what is it you're not sure of? Do you not believe that Jesus was real? Do you not believe that Jesus, what he did was enough? Do you not believe that God's real? Do you think you're too bad to be saved? Do you think you're so good you don't need to be saved? What is it? Seriously, deal with that because really God's calling you to himself. And we would love you to be able to, to, join, our, to join his family today. So I'm gonna just pray quickly and then we're gonna listen to this song and as the Lord leads, feel free to come up and get your portion. Father, I do pray for us that know you in truth. Lord, for those of us that know that you've already provided our redemption, you've already rescued us from our sin and our slavery. Lord, those of us that, that, that believe your word, Lord, and we want to obey you exclusively. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us right now as one family to draw close to you, to enjoy your presence, to, to revere you because without your spilt blood and broken body, we couldn't even approach you. But to celebrate you that, Lord, because of your spilt blood and your broken body, we're yours and we can enjoy you forever. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord, would you please bring them to that place of saving faith. Please bring them to that place, Lord, where they, they know they need you they know that they can trust you and they ask you to save them. Bring them to that place, we pray.